Ephesians chapter 6. <laughs> We're going to reading in verse 11 this morning. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth and having on the breastplate of righteousness and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Let's bow in prayer. Father, again, we thank you for the opportunity to gather here around the Word of God and to celebrate and rejoice in the truth of the person and victory we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. May you use your Word as we would examine our hearts and lives according to your word. May your spirit use the word of God to correct us, encourage and edify us, and grow us in the faith and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ as only you can do. Father, may we have submissive hearts to your truth. May we understand it, and may we embrace it and live in it daily as Christ, who is our victory, has been provided for us. We are grateful and thankful for this truth, and I pray that we might live accordingly, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. As I've begun the past several weeks uh, through our study of this portion of Ephesians, as we are concluding our study of Ephesians, this epistle, of course, chapter 6 is, uh, we've been here for some time in this particular even section of this text, and I find it necessary over and again to uh, to review to some degree to help you to understand where we are in the text and as well that we not, we not uh, become distracted maybe by one section, not again remembering the entirety of the passage and the importance of the, the context as it has been provided to us. And so I believe it is necessary to continue to remind you of, of this stark reality as believers in Jesus Christ that we are engaged in this spiritual war which is unavoidable. It's one which we cannot avoid. And I've told you through the past many weeks, and again, by way of review, that there are two, mighty, two primary fronts of attack which we face as believers in Jesus Christ. First of all, there are the attacks from within. In James 1, 13 through 15, James, of course, says that, that every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. And of course, when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sins, and when it is finished, bringeth forth death. And so the attack from within is one which, with the lust of this flesh, the nature, the sinful nature within us, it, it is tempted by sin. It is drawn away by sin. And then Galatians 5, 16 and 17, Paul as well, speaking to the church at Galatia, or the churches of Galatia, says that uh, the flesh lusteth against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, so that these are contrary the one to the other. And so Paul, again, is stating that there is this constant battle taking place within the believer because there is this sinful nature which he possesses, but also the indwelling Spirit of God is within him. And again, just to clarify, just to mention briefly, when Paul says the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, what he is saying is not the body, but the sinful fleshly nature is desiring to take control of the physical body so that to which it has no rightful claim because we've been bought with a price, 1 Corinthians 6, we are to glorify God in both our body and spirit, which are God's. And so God has purchased us. So we do not belong to ourselves, nor do we belong to sin. And so there's this constant battle that is, is unavoidable. You face it every day, I face it every day. Every moment of life, there's this reality and this presence of the sinful nature within me. Then there's attacks from without, the second front. 
Ephesians 6, 11 through 12, of course, we've read these verses many times. And Paul is saying we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, darkness, spiritual wickedness in high places. And then 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9, which we've read even this morning together, that we are to be cautious and be aware that we have an adversary. The devil is a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour. And so we are to, to resist steadfast in the faith, of course. And over the past several weeks, we've examined Paul's command for these Ephesian believers to stand. And again, just to remind you, the phrase to stand is an infinitive or referred to as a verbal noun, as I've explained. And so it is a word or a phrase that, that has both uh, aspects of a noun and a verb, but yet is neither a noun nor a verb. And the importance there, of course, when Paul says, having done all to stand, he is saying that we are to, I think a, a great way to explain this, he is saying maintain the position. That's what he's saying. Maintain the position. So he's saying we are to stand. There's a position we've been given by God in Jesus Christ. Now maintain that position. There's the verbal and, and the verb and noun aspects of that infinitive. And then he goes on to say in, in verse 11, uh, put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And the command to put on, of course, means to dress or to clothe. And so Paul is saying we are to dress ourselves, we are to clothe ourselves. Now again, God has provided the armor that we might daily clothe ourselves in the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ. God's already given us this victory in Christ. It's not something we are fighting for. Again, this passage of Scripture, I believe, has been grossly misrepresented and misinterpreted, has been false, falsely taught, if you will, maybe out of ignorance or maybe with some agenda in mind. But often, in a sense, even, this passage is used in an attempt to manipulate people. It really is. But yet what Paul is saying is not that we are... We are to clothe ourselves in the armor so we can go out and win a daily battle or win a daily fight that we face all the time. He's saying maintain the position. Stand in the truth of the victory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Clothe yourselves, dress yourselves in this armor. And as Paul declared in Romans 13, he's provided this armor that we might clothe ourselves in the victory of Christ. And he says in Romans 13, to put on the armor of light is to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 13, 12 and verse 14. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us, and let us put on the armor of light. But then in, the, in verse 14, two verses later, he says, But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ and make not provision of the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. So the armor, as we've mentioned, is not in addition to God's provision in Jesus, but this armor is God's provision in Jesus Christ. And that must be understood. Again, if you view this passage as though we have all this armor that we are to be, we are to be uh, uh, assessing and then appropriating as we see fit, then you're missing the entire point of Paul's message, and that is maintain the position. What is the position? Chapters 1 through 3, we've been given a position in the beloved, in the person of Christ, in Him, in Jesus so we are to maintain that position, and God has provided everything necessary in the person of Christ for us to live in the truth of the victory of Christ, which has been provided on our behalf. And that is what Paul is emphasizing here. In this chapter of his epistle to the Ephesian believers, in concluding this epistle or this letter, Paul addressed or expressed the details of this armor. In Ephesians 6, 13-17, of course, we find we first, as we've seen over the past many weeks, we stand in truth. Verse 14, Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. We stand in righteousness, verse 14, and having on the breastplate of righteousness. We stand in the gospel, the good news of God's peace, verse 15, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We stand in faith, verse 16, above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. We stand in salvation, verse 17, and take the helmet of salvation. We stand on or in the word of God, the truth of God's word, verse 17 and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. 
So Paul begins and concludes, as we have, as we have observed previously, his detail of this armor with the command to stand in truth, the first statement he makes, that we have been that we are to stand, therefore having your loins girt about with truth, and then also concludes with the, the command to take the word of God, to stand in the truth of God's word in verse 17, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So Paul begins with truth, and he concludes with truth, and everything else is enwrapped or encased and encompassed in truth. And again, there's a reason for this to, to be stated in this manner. First of all, we know Jesus Christ is truth, personified. I am the way, the truth, the life. And so Christ is truth himself. And we are commanded to stand in truth. First and foremost, Paul says in verse 14, Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. And so truth, Paul is establishing in this statement, that truth is the very foundation upon which we stand. Without truth, as we've seen, there is no true righteousness, there is no true gospel, there is no true faith, and there is no true salvation. So without truth... There is none of these things that are true. And so truth is paramount. Truth trumps all. And we must remember that. Second, we are commanded to stand in righteousness. We looked at this last week. And having on the breastplate of righteousness. Now within this verse, Paul again is exegeting or expounding the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. Now this is important for you to recognize. Because when Paul comes to Ephesians 6 in this portion of his letter, Paul is not merely commanding these believers uh, to instructing them in some new truth that he is giving them. He is actually taking, as he does so many times, Old Testament truth and explaining it, expounding upon it. By the way, that is what preaching actually is. And in his letter to his epistle to the churches, Paul is not just writing something new. He is taking the truth of the Old Testament and explaining it to them in its proper context of New Testament reality, of Christ having come, died, and risen, and ascended, and now established His church. And so Paul is explaining the truth to the Ephesian believers, and he's exegeting, if you will, Old Testament passages. And so in Isaiah 59, 15, we see this reality when he says, Yea, truth faileth. Now when he makes that statement, and notice it's interesting because even Paul's list He begins with our loins girt about with truth, and then he says, put on the breastplate of righteousness. And he's quoting from Isaiah 59, and notice what he says about uh, concerning what Isaiah prophesied. Yea, or yes, truth faileth. Now, when he makes that statement, he is saying, Isaiah is saying that truth is lacking, truth is missing, and truth is not present. He's not saying truth fails and that it's not capable to accomplish its purpose, but he's saying truth is not present among you. Truth is absent, and that it's lacking. And he says, he that departed from evil maketh himself a prey, and the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no judgment. Then in verses 16 and 17, the following two verses of Isaiah 59, we see God provided salvation through the promised Redeemer who is righteous and whose righteousness is a breastplate. Isaiah prophesied of this in Isaiah 59, 16 and 17. And he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. Therefore his arm brought salvation unto him, and his righteousness, it sustained him, for he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation upon his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and was clad with zeal as a cloak. This is a prophecy of the Lord Jesus Christ who is the righteousness of God. When there was no man, when truth was not present, when it was lacking, he says God still provides redemption. And by the way, the first verses of Isaiah 59 explain to us that God's arm is not short that it cannot save, that God is able to redeem, He is able to save, 
And so the context here is that there is a salvation provided by God, but the problem is the people are wicked, but yet there was no one to stand in place. There was no one to stand in the stead of the wicked, sinful men. So God had one who is Christ, Isaiah's prophesying. By the way, it should not take us by surprise that it is also the prophet Isaiah that gives us the clearest prophecy of the Lord Jesus in the Old Testament in Isaiah 53. And here we are in Isaiah 59. Isaiah is still prophesying of the coming Savior, of the Lord Jesus. And so our very hearts, being the breastplate of righteousness, our very hearts, the innermost part of our being, not the muscle, again, that pumps blood through our bodies, but the mind, the intellect, if you will, the innermost part of our being, that which thinks, that which processes, that which receives truth, or that which rejects truth, the very heart of man, the innermost part of his being, is covered in and by the righteousness of Jesus Christ when we are believers in Christ. God has clothed us. He has covered us. He has protected us. He has immersed us. He has imputed unto us the righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isaiah 61, just two chapters later, verse 10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, Isaiah says, my soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with jewels. Isn't it interesting also that he mentions a bridegroom and a bride in this case? By the way, if Jesus is the righteousness, we are clothed in the garments of salvation and the armor, as Paul mentions in Ephesians 6, who is the righteousness of Jesus Christ and Christ himself in Romans 13. We put on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's no wonder that Isaiah would bring up both a bridegroom and a bride. For Christ is the righteousness of God, and we as his bridegroom are adorned in his righteousness. And that's what Paul is saying here and quoting Isaiah and teaching us this truth. Look, Isaiah understood to some degree, obviously, what he was prophesying, but Paul is explaining it to us clearly. This is Jesus, and this is the work that God, the prophecy that God had made concerning the truth of his redemption, his salvation, clothed in the garments of righteousness and the robes of righteousness, garments of salvation. And so I would say to you, as Paul says, as we concluded last week as well, stand in his righteousness. He is righteous. He is, 1 Corinthians tells us, he has made, God has made him to be righteousness unto us. He is our righteousness. Maintain the position. Live in the truth of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And this morning, third, now we come to this third statement Paul makes, and that is that we are commanded to stand in the gospel of peace. Paul commands the Ephesian believers in verse 15, and your feet shod, have your feet shod, he's saying, with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now, as we discovered last week regarding Paul's command to put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as we've just re, or mentioned again and, and, and revisited, this command in verse 15 is also rooted in Old Testament scripture. In other words, Paul is not providing, again, some new instruction, pulling out of thin air, but once, once again we, we see he is explaining, exegeting, expounding upon the Old Testament within this passage of Scripture. And is it not interesting that Paul again quotes from Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 52, verses 7 through 10. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. Thy watchmen shall lift up the voice, with the voice together shall they sing, for they shall see eye to eye, when the Lord shall bring again Zion. Break forth into joy, sing together, ye waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord hath comforted his people, he hath redeemed 
Jerusalem. The Lord hath made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Paul further expounds on the truth of Isaiah's prophecy in his epistle to the Romans. In Romans 10, 11 through 15, these believers at Rome, he says, For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. Now again, the context here is simply this. Paul is saying, Old Testament prophesied that God is going to call out a people over and over. The Old Testament prophets declared that God was going to make a people who were not a people his people, referring to the Gentiles because Israel were his people in the Old Testament. And so now he's saying God is going to make a people who are not a people his people, the Gentiles. And here Paul is explaining again the New Testament reality and truth of the context of the statement and prophecies within the Old Testament. For the scripture saith, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed. For there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. There it is, the Jew and the Gentile, the Greek being a Gentile. There's no difference. For the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? How shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, back to Isaiah's prophecy, How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. And Paul is not merely saying this to the Jews. He's saying it's not about Jews and Gentiles. It's about God opening up grace to both Jew and Gentile alike. And he's saying here, How beautiful are the feet of those that preach the gospel of peace and bring good ti- glad tidings of good things. So Paul's quote of Isaiah, both in Romans and Ephesians, explains that the prophecy, again, was not only to or for the remnant of Israel, but also was fulfilled by the gospel of peace being brought to the Gentiles for their salvation. And so Paul commands the believers here in Ephesians chapter 6 to have your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel. Now the verb shod, it means to tie, to bind, or to put on. And the noun preparation means prepared or ready. And within Ephesians 6.15, Paul provides a metaphor when he says, have your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. He's providing a metaphor for wearing the appropriate footwear for the battles that are faced. And it's reported that the Roman soldiers would wear sandals with a form of nails or a, or a form of spikes that would extend from the soles into the ground, somewhat as we would think of modern-day cleats for sports. And they did this so that the soldiers might be able to take a firm position, and not lose their footing in the midst of the battle. They were able to not slide or be moved, but they were able to plant themselves. They were able to hold or maintain, if you will, a position that was necessary in the battle in which they fought. And the proper shoes, obviously, were necessary for two reasons, both to protect the feet of the soldiers, but also to provide him stability. And the feet are not only the means by which we maintain footing, though that's important to recognize, the feet are also the means by which the gospel is carried into the world, as prophesied by Isaiah. So Paul's command is for the Ephesian believers to secure themselves in the gospel of their salvation so that they remain steadfast and they remain unmoved in their responsibility of declaring the gospel amid the attacks of the enemy against the gospel. Just like you would think, again, of a pair of cleats for 
for football, for uh, baseball, softball, what have you, and, or soccer, and, and you think about how that they use the cleats, otherwise they would be sliding on the field as they're running, trying to, trying to shift and take position or what have you. The fact of the matter is the soldiers would have such a, a sandal or shoe for protection against the, the terrain they were in or against even trap entrapment of the enemy potentially, but also that they might be able to secure footing and grounding, that they not be moved easily, that they not be pushed back, that they not, they not lose their footing and slip or fall. And so here Paul is saying that we are to have our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We are to be prepared in the truth of the gospel. Now there's two reasons for that, just as I've alluded to a moment ago. The first is that we might maintain position and footing. Isn't that the entire message Paul is giving here? Maintain the position. You stand. Having done all to stand, stand therefore. Maintain the position. As explained in Ephesians chapters 1 through 3. So maintain the position. How are we going to maintain the position? To be steadfast, securely set and rooted and grounded in the gospel. In the good news of Jesus Christ. But then second, we are to have our feet shod with the preparation, be prepared in the gospel, so that we are able to declare this gospel to those who are without, to those who are without Christ, to those who are lost in spiritual blindness and darkness. And so we must be prepared in the gospel, and we must have a sure footing. Listen, there is great opposition to the truth today. There is great opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ. You must be rooted. You must be firmly planted. You must be positioned in the gospel in such a way that you can stand in the truth of the position as God has declared it for you in Scripture. And this is a must. This is a necessity. And we must be aware of this truth. Second, Paul also provides in this, in this verse further explanation of the power of the gospel in which they are to stand. In other words, Paul explains that this is the gospel or good news, gospel meaning good news, of peace. Paul commands the church to have your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now, why does Paul mention it in this fashion? Why does Paul say the gospel of peace? Why doesn't he say the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, obviously, the gospel of peace is the gospel of Jesus Christ, but why does he mention the word peace here? Well, first of all, remember something. He's talking about warfare, is he not? He's talking about standing in the midst of attack. He's talking about taking a position, maintaining the position that we've been provided. And then he brings peace into the fact. Why does he bring the gospel of peace, the good news of peace? Well, there's an all-important truth here that that must not be ignored or overlooked or negated. And that is that while we are in a daily battle without question, we have a battle that takes place within us. We have a battle from without that is coming and confronting us. And we recognize that. We've seen that clearly in the scriptures thus far, and we know it to be a truth even in our own experiences of daily living as a believer in Christ. There is a constant war that's going on. But yet he says we are to take footing, we are to maintain the position of the good news of peace in the midst of a battle, in the midst of a warfare that is raging all about us and even within us. And yet he says this good news, this gospel of peace, peace. We stand in a world that is unstable. We live in a world that has no solid ground upon which to stand. However, we are equipped and we are clothed in the gospel of peace. This good news of peace provides us confidence. It provides us stability in a world of absolute uncertainty because we are standing rooted in this truth. Not that we have peace with the world, 
Not that we even have peace within ourselves. Not that we have peace with one another. We stand confidently, firmly rooted, grounded in this position that no matter what is taking place about us, no matter what is taking place within us, we have peace with God. And this is the all-important truth upon which we stand. In a world that is chaotic, in a world that is spiritually dark, in a world that is spiritually blind, in a world that is spiritually dead, we have a position of peace with God in Jesus Christ. And nothing can shake that. Nothing can change that. Romans 5, 1-6, Paul wrote, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And remember, I spoke to this recently, in one of our classes at least, but being justified by faith. So, by faith in Christ, we are now declared righteous as Christ is righteous because our righteousness is of Him. He is our righteousness. And so, righteous, our justification is not merely God sees me as though I'd never sinned, as many people would claim, which means innocent, of course. No, it's God sees me righteous as He sees His Son which is not based at all, again, upon what we do or what we have done or what we will do. It's solely based on Christ and who He is and what He's accomplished. And so Christ is righteous. We are righteous in Him. And so we have this righteousness of Christ within us, the righteousness of God, and we have peace with God through Christ, being justified, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand. Isn't that interesting? So we have access into this grace wherein we stand. We maintain the position that we've been given in Jesus Christ. We are standing in the truth of His righteousness and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also or we glory in tribulations also, Paul says, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. So again, here in the midst of tribulation, we have hope, Paul says, we have confidence in God's glory because we have been provided peace with God through Jesus Christ. Paul further explains that this hope or this confidence does not disappoint. He says, hope maketh not ashamed. This confidence does not leave us ashamed. For this hope is in the person and finished work of our Lord Jesus, and it's sealed within us by His Spirit. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 5. And so, having your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, being prepared in the truth of the gospel, or the good news that we have peace with God, we are able to stand firmly in this position. Even in Romans 5, being justified by faith, we have peace with God and access in this grace wherein we stand. So we are standing in the truth of God's provision for us in Christ, and again, we take this position firmly, we are unshaken, we are unmoved, And we can therefore declare this truth as ambassadors of Christ, as soldiers of the Lord Jesus Christ, as Paul refers to himself, and he refers to us as being this. We now can stand in the good news, again, that we have peace with God, regardless of everything else. In the midst of this battle, Paul brings up your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And again, the importance is that I have peace, not in the world. I have peace sometimes not even with myself, and I'm not always at peace with others, but there's not a moment that I am not at peace with God because of Jesus. And I therefore can maintain the position, I can stand in this truth regardless of everything else. Concerning uh, being positioned for the declaration and proclamation of the gospel, 
We recognize that in taking this position, as we're told in Scripture, we are not to be tossed about by every wind of doctrine. So we are to be rooted and grounded in the truth of who Christ is and who we are in Him and who He is in us and God's promise and God's provision of Christ as declared within His Word. In explaining the Lord's eternal purpose concerning the Gentiles, Paul wrote Romans 11, 7-13, Wherefore receive ye one another, as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers, talking to the Jews, and that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy as it is written, For this cause I will confess to thee among the Gentiles and sing unto thy name. And again he saith, Rejoice ye Gentiles with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles, and laud him, all ye people. And again, Isaiah saith, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he that shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, and him shall the Gentiles trust. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, that ye may abound in hope and confidence through the power of the Holy Ghost. Paul further explains in this text, that the confidence we as Gentile believers, notice he's talking about the Gentiles here being made a people again. And he says that, that we as Gentile believers have this confidence in which we stand, and that is the confidence of the joy and peace of God, which produces abundance, abundant confidence through the presence and power of God's Spirit dwelling within us as believers in Jesus Christ. In his epistle to the Colossian believers, who were also Gentiles, Paul wrote, Colossians 1, 19-22. For it pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell, speaking, of course, of our Lord Jesus, and having made peace through the blood of His cross, by Him to reconcile all things unto Himself. By Him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath He reconciled in the body of His flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unprovable, unreprovable in His sight." Here again, he's speaking concerning the Gentiles to the Colossian believers. And he's saying, you are alienated. You are in wicked works. And yet God, through the blood of uh, of Jesus Christ, the cross of Christ, his death, the shedding of his blood, the atonement that was made, now he's reconciled you, having made peace. Having made peace. People say things such as this about, well, you better make peace with God. I don't have to. Christ made peace for me with God. I stand in the peace that Christ has provided. I stand in the work and finished work of His cross. I stand in the truth of His redemption. And I stand in the reality that He is my righteousness. I can take firm footing, and that's the emphasis, shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. He is saying in the midst of the war, we have peace. Embrace that peace. Realize that peace. Understand that peace. Take the position of the peace that you have been given in Jesus Christ. And again... Not peace with the world, not peace with one another even, peace with God. What more could be needed than that we have peace with Him? We stand in this position of peace. While I fight a battle within me every day, you need to understand this. You fight a battle within you every day. We've seen this multiple times through the study. There's a constant war that is going on, constant battles, constant confrontation that is taking place in our lives every single day. But you know what never changes? I'm at peace with God. There is a constant attack against the gospel of Jesus Christ in a world of ungodliness and wickedness. But do you know what never changes? No matter how much the battle may rage, I am at peace with God. Maintain the position that you've been given in the peace of God. 
We Gentile believers in Christ have the confidence that we are reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. For it is through His cross we now have peace with God. God provided His Son that the enmity between us and Him could be eradicated. What's more, not only is there no enmity now present, but we are at peace with God having been adopted into His family through His redemption provided in Jesus Christ. Back to Ephesians 1, 3-6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as He hath chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, wherein He hath made us accepted in the beloved. We are to confidently stand in the peace provided by the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are to maintain this position that God has provided us. Although the world in which we live is unstable, although this world is filled with uncertainty, although this world has no solid ground upon which to stand, we have been provided the good news, the gospel of the peace of God in Jesus Christ. And we can declare with confidence and certainty this good news in which we stand, that others might also come to experience the same peace with God through Jesus Christ as do we. 2 Corinthians 5 17 through 21, you know this first verse without question. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. Here he is, making peace, brought us, uh, reconnected us, restored us to the Father in fellowship, in relationship, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation. So not only has he reconciled us, but he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. He's made peace with them through the blood and cross of Christ and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation, Paul says. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, ye be be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. We have been reconciled to God And now we stand in the sufficiency of God's provision in Jesus Christ and His finished work as His ambassadors. God has committed to us both the word and ministry of reconciliation. But notice, before we were given the ministry of reconciliation, as Paul declares, before He was given and we are given the word of reconciliation, as Paul declares, He first says that God has reconciled us unto Himself. So what does that mean? It means God has given us this position in which we stand and because we have this firm footing, because we have this confident footing, because we know that there is peace between us and God as God has provided it in His Son, Jesus Christ, now we with absolute confidence and certainty can minister reconciliation, we can live out the truth of this reconciliation we have been given in Christ, and we declare the word of reconciliation, the gospel of the good news, the good news or gospel of peace, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Stand, Paul says. Stand, having your loins girt about with truth. Truth is paramount. Truth is foundational here. Then he says, having on the breastplate of righteousness, your mind and your heart, your intellect, all about you, the innermost part of your being, that we are recognizing that God has clothed us in his righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So maintain that position. Remember, live in the truth that you have been made righteous in Christ. He is your righteousness. Then he says, as well, 
that we are to have our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, that our feet are to be protected, our footing is to be guarded, our footing is to be rooted and grounded, firmly planted as we hold this position, maintain this position. But also, we maintain the position not only remembering ourselves that we live in the truth, that we have peace with God, but it's because of this position that we with confidence declare the gospel of Jesus Christ and the gospel of peace, saying, understanding we are rooted and grounded and that others can be as well through God's provision in Jesus Christ. So no matter what the battle may be within us, no matter what the battle may be coming from without unto us, we stand with our feet. We are prepared, clothed, covered in the gospel of peace, in the confidence of God's justifying work in Christ, of the confidence of Him imputing the righteousness of Jesus unto us, in the confidence that we are embraced and, and, and immersed in His truth, and therefore we take the position unwaveringly. We take the position steadfastly. We take the position, maintain the position, having our feet guarded, protected, prepared, both in our defense of the gospel. As Peter said, we are to be ready to give any man, every man an answer that asks of the hope that is within us. Apologetics, he's saying. We are apologists. We are defending the faith, but also not only in defense of the faith and our own position in the faith, but also declaring that truth to those who are without Christ, to those who are in need of the gospel. Have your feet shod. Maintain the position. Maintain the position of truth. Maintain the position of righteousness. Maintain the position that you have peace with God. And nothing changes that. We have peace with God through Jesus Christ.